Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 70 Doomsday Part 3 I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Mosaic. I'm Doc and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and look forwards to the future while learning from the past. This episode breaks down fighting Doomsday from the perspective of our heroes to combat some common complaints and criticisms. This show dives deep into DC Films for answers and insights as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. Alright, welcome back. In this part of our past recording, it's mostly Batman and Lois, monsters, and a mishmash of miscellaneous questions. You're the answer, son. Okay, as usual, my notes are too expansive for the episode. There is so much more decision-making to dissect and insights to glean from the DVS. Meanwhile, Batman flies over Stryker's Island, where patches of fire now dot the destroyed landscape. He spots Doomsday below. The brute aims heat vision beams at the aircraft. Batman swoops low, and the beams hit the side of a hill. The Batplane hightails it away from the island. Batman shoots as he closes in on the creature. Doomsday swipes at him, fire billowing, but Batman soars away. The Brute launches after him, igniting his heat vision. Chasing the Batplane into Gotham, Doomsday slices a wing with his heat vision. Batman loses control. He crashes into a parking lot, then tumbles to a stop against the building. He struggles to unbuckle himself. Doomsday lands in the parking lot, sending cars and chunks of concrete flying. He eyes Batman. Let's take a look at Batman and three common criticisms about his actions. Why did he leave the spear with Lois? Why didn't he bring the spear to Doomsday instead of bringing Doomsday to Gotham? And why wasn't he going for the spear during the battle with Doomsday? So it's easy to understand where that first question comes from. When so much of defeating Doomsday ends up becoming about the spear, and as human beings, subject to cognitive biases like creeping determinism, or claiming to have known it all along, audiences have a tendency to perceive events that have already occurred as more predictable than they actually were, before the events took place, and judging our heroes harshly through that hindsight bias. The fog of war is that things simply aren't clear. I mean, it's one thing to look in retrospect and say, well, one should have done that. But you have to see it the way people did at the time. Douglas Porch is a military historian and retired professor of national security affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. We're sharing this story because it helps to demonstrate a common error in the way we tend to think about past events. Some call it the historian's fallacy, where key moments in history, like the fall of France, come to be seen as inevitable, when in fact, they were anything but. In psychology and behavioral economics, this tendency is called hindsight bias, that I knew it all along since you get when an outcome arises 
losses that you're sure you could have predicted. It was so obvious it was coming. The thing is, when you don't know the outcome, it's often very hard to predict the precise things that seem obvious in hindsight. That's the hindsight bias. That something you would have found confusing or unknowable in foresight suddenly seems obvious in hindsight. It's closely related to another bias called the curse of knowledge, where once we have information, we're unable to accurately recall or simulate the experience of being naive. That is, we can't accurately remember what it was like before the information was available to us. For example, as a professor explaining something to my students, I often suffer from the curse of knowledge. The knowledge seems obvious to me now. And when I try to explain it, sometimes I fail because I fail at perspective taking. This inability to recall what it was like before you had certain information is part of what fuels hindsight bias. Kathleen is a professor at the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. So today we're going to talk about hindsight bias. What's the easiest way for people to understand what hindsight bias is? Hindsight bias, I think, is intuitive because I think a lot of us experience this a lot in our lives and we see other people do it. But briefly, it's the phenomenon where once you know about an event, what happened, how it happened, then you say like, oh, of course, I could have totally predicted that would have gone that way. So it's this idea that your evaluation and your predicting of the likelihood of an event is altered by knowing how the event played out or whether it happened or not. When in actuality, you probably would not have been able to know that that was going to happen either at all or the way that it did. So that constitutes the bias is that there's some error that creeps in once people know about an outcome that they think they would have been able to foresee, but they don't. I mean, the legal system and historical context are two situations in which everybody is interpreting something after the outcome is known. And so it's just a very complex and also a kind of very rich setting for us to observe hindsight bias. Do you have any advice to people on how they can avoid falling prey to hindsight bias or how we can reduce it, at least in our own judgments? A lot of times hindsight bias not only involves thinking about the outcome, but also thinking about like how it occurred, some sort of causal factor. And so one way to kind of reduce hindsight bias is to get people to think about their favorite causal candidate. You know, this it happened because of this reason. But then also to start to consider lots of other potential causes for that same outcome. Because in reality, almost all complex social outcomes are due to a multitude of different factors, including randomness, including things that are mechanical, other people's actions, etc. And the more that people center on one causal role, the more that they just overweight its ability to have produced the outcome. And that can cause a lot of undue harm. So when you get people to break down that there are lots of different ways that this same outcome could have occurred, you know, through different pathways, that can help. And the other way is to think about all the different ways that the outcome could have gone another way. So it would have been different in degree or different in kind, or it wouldn't have happened at all, or it would have been delayed in time or pushed forward in time. And so when you get people to map out basically a host of alternate realities, that can help them to feel less confident that they knew it all along, which is the hallmark of the hindsight bias. So let's apply some of that to how people criticize Batman for leaving the spear. Let's look at the assumptions being made and analyze the alternative. They assume that the spear would be more secure with Batman, and that that would have prevented the need to fetch it and find it later. But is that really the case? We've seen this Batman in action in three different films, and between BVS, Suicide Squad, and Justice League, He's had a penchant for throwing his Batmobile at things as a massive armored projectile. I don't think a single Bat vehicle has escaped some sort of crash across three different movies. (laughs) 
While the Batmobile fares well against Knizhev, it does less well against Superman's shin, sinking to the bottom of the bay, or against Parademons. The Batwing is clipped by Doomsday and Crash Lance, the Flying Fox Crash Lance, and the Nightcrawler gets abandoned three times over. So in a certain sense, Batman sees his vehicles as somewhat disposable and not completely secure. By contrast, you have to consider the battleground that Batman picked for his standoff with Superman. Remember that his entire issue with Superman comes from experiencing collateral damage. And we know that Batman has taken precautions to ensure that no one gets caught in the crossfire of his revenge, or at least interferes, as he confidently states, The port is abandoned. And this means that this is a secure site. Remember that this site is laden with Wayne tech and evidence leading back to the bat. There are automated gun turrets, sonic emitters, trip wires, and trap plates. Not to mention a bat signal to boot. Batman is definitely coming back to clean all this up. He's not just leaving a full-auto anti-tank firearm out there on the streets to be picked up by anyone. He's not leaving all those triggers and traps we didn't see. He also doesn't know that Doomsday is brewing. He doesn't have a crystal ball. Now that he's no longer after Superman, the spear seems irrelevant. The main risk of it, if any, is retrieval by Lex's men. But Martha is on his mind. He has to go rescue her from Lex's minions. To the extent that he's thinking about the spear at all, it seems strange that he'd take the step to deliver it to the people he's worried about getting it. Heck, the first thing that happens when he arrives on site to rescue Martha is to leap out of the Batwing, abandoning it. Leaving the spear with Lois puts his focus purely on Martha, with a singular, laser-like mission, rescue Martha. Bringing the spear divides his attentions, priorities, and plans in half. Rescue Martha, but also protect the spear and Batwing. And perhaps that makes him more hesitant to strafe the technicals or hover so near for second floor entry. Things that put the wing and the spear within in reach of a stray RPG or other munitions. Regardless, given his prevalence for crashing vehicles, intended or otherwise, it makes sense not to see the wing as all that secure, and that bringing the spear would limit his actions or options. Something that he wasn't going to do with Martha at stake. All of this goes for Alfred as well, who is Batman's literal man in the chair, wingman, and co pilot. Alfred is as focused on Martha's safety as he is. Whereas normally he might be free to do housekeeping like attending to the spear and Miss Lane. So if we take some time to work through the hindsight bias, we can see the reasons for Batman's choices which gives us insight into the character. Like his tendency to kamikaze aircraft, his planning an abandoned port to protect innocence, and the degree to which he respects Lois and prioritizes Martha. Note how formidable Lois and Martha are. Until now we see the Batman always elicits fear, even from women he's rescued, even from law enforcement ostensibly on his side, and even from hardened mercenaries furnished with firepower. But Lois puts herself between his murderous rage and Clark. Martha is able to identify an ally and not quake with terror. I'm just saying, there's a reason Batman doesn't see the need to handhold them, order them around, or treat them as fragile. Batman can trust their competence and toughness. You could trust Lois, you know, as a character. She, yeah. She's not gonna. She's not gonna let you down. She's 
I mean, we want her that way. So we, we worked to get her to solve the problems that needed to be solved and yeah. be there when it, she needed to be there and all that stuff. I can't wait to see the real conversation between these two characters. So speaking about Lois, we have to address the complaints about her discarding and eventually retrieving the spear. So from Lois's perspective, she's seen what kryptonite can do. And she's seen Superman in a weakened state, both before on Zod's ship and now moments ago. It doesn't take a lot to consider the implications of that, and she has a heightened concern for Clark's welfare compared to Batman. For him, the focus was simply on not killing Superman, and if he's not going to do it, then he's less worried about who might or would in the future. They know Lex is up to something, but the hand that they've been shown reveals duress as Lex's only defense. There's no indication that Lex could forcibly harm or hurt Superman anymore. Moreover, Superman is going to Lex, presumably to stop him. So from Batman's perspective, the threat to Superman by Lex or the spear is minimal once Martha is safe. But for Lois, naturally, she's thinking more about Clark's future than Batman would, and less myopic than him. She's already seen the government act questionably and investigated conspiracies, cover-ups, and corruption. The spear isn't something that she can just take to law enforcement. It's not something secure with her as she hails a cab back to civilization. And as tough as Lois is, she isn't a magical martial artist who's going to be able to beat a mugging at the end of a gun barrel with a spear. But she also isn't just going to sit still and wait for Superman and Batman to come back. So, she drops it in the water as a means of safeguarding it temporarily. It hides the spear, visually, and shields its radiation and signature some. Astronaut Mike Massimino and Bill Nye. We do other things for, for space radiation. Like uh, suits? Like space suits. Uh, water's a pretty good insulator, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. But uh, when you say water, you jacket the spacecraft. Well, for example, water can, yeah. So if you have a water bag, like on the space station, you want to get some extra extra uh, shielding. Mm-hmm. If you were to, to, to line the outside of your spaceship with, uh, with water, for example. If you were worried about a solar flare, for example, yeah. in your spaceship, and you had water bags, that oh. would help you. It's not meant to make the spear impossible to recover, just harder to recover without specific knowledge or a concerted attempt. And I don't think it would even be an issue for audiences if it weren't accompanied by the following scene where Lois determines she needs to retrieve the spear. The hindsight bias is strong. So audiences dislike what they perceive to be disasters of the character's own making. They dislike it when the crisis is seemingly caused by the character, that the emergency emerges by their behavior. These get expressed as if-onlys. If only Lois hadn't dropped the spear in the water, she wouldn't have to recover it. If only Clark hadn't entered the scout ship, he wouldn't have had to fight Zod. If only Jonathan had sent Clark instead, he'd still be alive. And if only Wonder Woman had the spear, Superman wouldn't have died. <laughs> but these if-onlys are only true as oversimplified abstractions of what was actually going on, what the characters did and could know at the time, being judged harshly through hindsight and are actually wrong in their predictions. If Clark didn't enter the ship, Zod wouldn't have come in response to him, but Zod still would have come to Earth in response to the military breaching the scout ship and encountering the sentries within. If Jonathan hadn't gone, he might be fine from the 
the tornado, but the risk of revealing Clark's secret prematurely to the world has gone up significantly. And we'll talk about Wonder Woman and the spear later. For Lois, it is factually true that she would not have to recover it, but that doesn't make her actions irrational or a mistake. It is often the case in real life that we make reasonable decisions based on the information on hand or a reasonable basis, only to eventually find that we should change course or would have preferred a different decision. You know plenty of people who have changed paths, transformed their lives, went from one career, creed, or commitment to another after consideration or circumstance. Or maybe you are that person, and our discomfort with that is why we lament Sisyphean circumstances as torment. But having to go back, redo, undo, correct course, and repeat is a fact of life. We need to comprehend and accept that in real life, sometimes we don't do or decide the perfect course of action, or that we have the ability to evaluate its perfection at any given moment, but nonetheless have to be able to move on and forwards. Regret is a universal experience. Amy Somerville is a psychology professor at Miami University of Ohio. She runs the Regret Lab, where she studies how people think about the choices they made and the choices they wish they'd made. One of the things that then drew me to regret from that is the fact that regret is among our most common emotions. Um, By some estimates, it's the second most common emotion mentioned in daily life and the most common negative emotion that we mention. And so this is really a pervasive part of how people experience the world around them. And regret is the number one thing that people would wish away if they had the power to time travel or project information into the past to rectify their present. Certainly, in terms of the specific incidents that we regret, they do seem to be most likely things where we had this opportunity in the moment, but it's not something that we can go back and fix. Because obviously, if we could just magically turn back and fix something, then most people would do that rather than continue to regret it. It totally worked! Oh, Barry, who knew changing the past would feel so amazing? I mean, when I think of all the things I regret in life, the movies I missed, the words I mispronounced, the Robins I didn't tell off. (gasps) Hey, if we could somehow go back in time, we could go back and tell you to tell me. You're right! We should go back in time and fix every regret we've ever had! You're a genius, Barry! Vamos! This is a heavy theme that actually resides in one of the most sci-fi elements of BVS. But that's another show. (laughs) As universal as regret is, your response to it is more important than your feeling. Lois doesn't wallow in wanting to reverse her earlier decision. She sets about to actually accomplish it. Many movies give us heroes who just do the right or sympathetic thing always, so they never have to deal with the very human condition of regret or reversal. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that one of the biggest themes in BVS is redemption. But we can rebuild. We can do better. We will. We have to. The difference in how people cope with the past and its regrets. Do they let it eat up their inside, or do they confront them and do their best to correct them? Lois is an example of the latter category. She doesn't let the incident in Africa fester. She wants an axe to figure it out. What I'm saying, I want to understand what happened. 
and she doesn't just sit there sobbing about the sinking spear. She jumps in to fish it out. Conversely, too many of the critics find themselves in the former category. They contest the underlying decision based on incomplete, abstracted, or erroneous facts. Now, it's impossible to address all the alternative course of actions critics propose, but you might want to cover all their counterfactual hypos with something Bill Nye says. An aphorism I hope you will embrace, a, a saying, a way of looking at the world that I hope you will take to heart. If things were any other way, things would be different. Or another way you've heard it said, if wishes were fishes, it means you have to deal with the actual facts of the situation and on the ground. The facts are what they are. Critiquing a situation based on an abstraction incongruent with the facts, proposed thought experiments, are problematic when reliant on incomplete or counterfactual premises. Funny enough, many critics feel it's fine to forge ahead in judgment even without the basic facts, without seeing the the entire film. In the following clip, editors at Empire swap stories about critics sleeping through their screenings and still reviewing said films. Um, I will name no names, but <laughs> I've certainly sat in critic screenings and watched famous critics fall asleep and then still review the films. No. And I've certainly seen them walk out with 20 minutes to go and still review the films. I, Same paper, different critics. I have also seen this happen. I have had to clamber over the legs of said critics uh, in order to leave the film uh, as the credits roll because they're fast asleep and they're not moving. There but... are certain famous internet critics who are notorious for doing that. Really? A certain well, one that you, you read regularly, Chris, or used to. Oh, for leaving early? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, but he, he's very open about that on his on his. Good, uh, we can name him then. Yeah, Jeff Wells. Yeah. Jeff Wells, yeah, yeah. He, he very much subscribes to the Life's Too Short uh, ethos when he goes to see a film. And if it's really bugging him, he'll, he'll leave. <laughs> I wish I could say that that was unbelievable. In general, we ought to give people the benefit of the doubt that they've at least seen the thing that they're criticizing. But when professionals paid to watch a film don't, it's fair to weigh their reactions accordingly. When the objections don't line up with the underlying facts of the actual scene, the objective on-screen source, skepticism, is called for. So much of the critiques are dispelled by simply watching the film as is, without preconception, accepted as it's presented. But in practice, most criticism comes from recollections of a cursory viewing affected by narratives and bias. And this means that their position isn't necessarily false or insincere or intentionally adversarial, but it is compromised. Clay Rutledge is a psychology professor at North Dakota State University. He's the author of Nostalgia, a psychological resource. To me, I see it's almost like making a movie. You have all these memories that represent raw footage, right? All the filming that you've done. And of course, anyone who's made a movie or watched a movie knows you don't go watch hundreds of hours of raw footage. That would be a horrible <laughs> movie, right? Well, you have an editing process, a process where the director and editors and people involved with the film will sort of shape and edit the movie in a way that tells the story that they want to tell or that features the most central themes and the and a narrative in a meaningful way. And, you know, we do that to some extent with our autobiographical memories as well. So it's not the case that we're necessarily completely fabricating memories so much as we're selecting and kind of weaving these different memories into a meaningful self-narrative that helps us make some sense of our lives and our connection to others. Now, this doesn't mean it can't go wrong or that people don't have false memories, but I think a decent portion of this is healthy recollection that's not necessarily false, but does involve a certain level of, you know, massaging the raw footage, so to speak. 
These lead to shortcuts, shorthand, abstractions, and inaccuracies that get conflated with the truth. Superman is mostly serious and sometimes smiles becomes Superman never smiles in the edit bay of their brains. And so that's why, as exhausting as it is, we dig deep into the details to bring out how the film doesn't line up with these lies. Okay, it's a little ironic for me to criticize critics for counterfactual thought experiments and then to use that tool to defend BVS, but I'm going to distinguish our use using particulars and details as opposed to abstraction. It is not the fact that examining alternatives is foreclosed to us. The issue is oversimplification for the sake of advocating an argument. Indeed, philosopher James Wilson warrants that the value of literature and fiction for figuring out our ethics as a way to wisdom and experience is through the complexity and richness found in fiction. There are other sorts of techniques or ways of doing philosophy that don't rely so much on thought experiments. So, for example, you can look at very much richer cases. The use of literature is a good example. In that case, you have a world that's much more richly imagined. It's a world in, with real people, people often with history, people you can identify with and either sort of hate or love. And in doing so, you can get inside a philosophical problem, maybe about what love is or what sorts of things that we should regret in a way that a thought experiment maybe never will be able to do. It's interesting you described fictional characters as real people because they aren't, are they? They're imagined. I mean, famously, someone wrote a paper about how many children had Lady Macbeth. There just isn't an answer. There's no right answer because it's never mentioned by Shakespeare. She's not like a real person who would have a specific number of children and she only does what she does in the play she doesn't do anything else indeed maybe one thing to say is that a novel or a play is much more highly realized much more highly thought out than a thought experiment so there's a way that there's a real world that you can think your way into and certainly if you're an actor playing the role of lady macbeth or macbeth that shakespeare's given enough there for us to sort of empathize with and to be able to sort of build a backstory understand what the character is like i would completely agree that shakespeare hasn't told us everything about those people's lives and there's a lot that we need to fill in but maybe that's just the beginning of wisdom that it's never possible for somebody to tell us everything about a life in fact even for our closest friends or the family members we don't know them completely either nonetheless you can know people through knowing aspects of them and that may be enough to do good moral philosophy with it may be that you don't need to have an omniscient understanding of every single possible fact about somebody in order to be able to inhabit their world to understand what it's like and then use that as a way of reflecting ethically realistic and rich literature gives us something more meaningful than abstract thought experiments, but still incompletely, which simulates the uncertainty of real life. People who assess fiction from an omniscient third-party perspective, failing to account for the knowledge and perspectives of the inhabitants, critiquing with an incomplete theory of mind, miss out on this benefit. And that explains why so much criticism of BVS seems to come from an especially naive-sounding perspective. So if we walk down some of the what-if situations, we might see that Lois actually saves the spear by way of circumstantial eucatastrophe. To be clear, I'm not saying that these justify her actions in and of themselves, but they do strip away some of the abstraction and objectionable lack of detail in the critics' proposed alternatives. For example, if Lois didn't sink the spear, but instead squirreled it away, it would have likely been damaged and destroyed by Doomsday's last dome attack. Let's pay attention to the details. During the dome attack, basically nothing is left standing. Structures made of several feet of solid granite collapse and fall, as the DVS says. The energy pulverizes skyscrapers as it spreads. This is one of the most powerful attacks a Kryptonian can muster. 
Come on, isn't there something you can try even harder with? One last superpower in your arsenal? Well, there's one thing. Clark told me about it. It's called a super flare. It uses all the solar energy in my cells, concentrating all my Kryptonian strength into one powerful blast. Later, when we see Superman go to Lois, there isn't a rooftop still standing in sight. This means that everything has collapsed, fell, and would have fallen hard on the spear if it were above the water. You can be sure that a stone pillar or a piece of wall falling on the spear could have broken its internal mechanisms, and thus possibly its effectiveness. If you don't know what I'm talking about, refer back to episode 50 on the Kryptonite Spear. But in short, there's a reason the shaft looks like a lightsaber, and that the spearhead lights up like one. Anyways, under the water, debris still descends upon the spear, but with the water resistance, rocks float down, and they just pin the spear instead of snapping it in two or shattering it to pieces, if it had been hit on dry land. So although Lois did not anticipate, intend, or expect it, putting the spear into the water spared it from being destroyed. Similarly, Lois getting trapped underwater while retrieving the spear is a catastrophe that allows Superman to locate the spear and bring it to bear. The same way the water saved the spear, it saves Lois. She literally dives under the water to protect herself from falling debris. Still in the pool, Lois dives underwater as the building around her crumbles and debris pours down. Jagged chunks of tiled walls sink in the pool and trap the kryptonite spear. Getting trapped near the spear brings her and it to Superman's attention to be rescued and recovered. His head whips toward the noise. Lois's legs flail and her banging grows weaker. Superman flies off. Moments later, a chunk of debris is lifted from the water. Superman carries an unconscious Lois from the pool her limp body cradled in his arms. We discussed what U-Catastrophe was back in our fantasy episode 52, but if you need a refresher... One of Tolkien's concepts was the idea of the U-Catastrophe, a word he created to express a narrative convention he loved to use. This was the idea that when all hope seemed lost and the protagonists of your story seemed doomed, a U-Catastrophe could occur and suddenly turn everything around in their favor, allowing for good to triumph at the last second. This idea created many tense, satisfying moments in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit series, such as the climax of the Battle of Hornburg, as well as many other pivotal moments in the series. Now, many people confuse this for a deus ex machina, but this is incorrect. For those who are unaware, a deus ex machina is a phrase that originally meant the day being saved by an act of the gods in Greek theater but has evolved in modern times to mean a resolution that comes out of nowhere, with no prior foreshadowing. Tolkien's catastrophes, on the other hand, are always internally consistent with his secondary world. That is a very important distinction to make. Tolkien would point to these turns of grace as a reflection of the real world, that in fact, these turns of circumstance occur in actual creation. Any student of history knows that around any extraordinary event, there are a litany of fortunes that had to happen just so for history to unfold in the way that we've come to know. And no, I'm not going to perpetuate the myth that the Great War was started by a sandwich, but regardless, 
Writer Chris Terrio is not only a student of history, but versed in and influenced by Tolkien as a writer. I have the sense that if you could make all three worlds collide, which is to say the Hollywood world, the espionage world, and the sort of geopolitical world, if you could make those things collide back to back and still feel like they're part of the same movie, then it could work. And then I started thinking, imagining the, the words of the script and imagining that you could have this J.R.R. Tolkien-ish kind of intonation. It's a little bit absurd, you know, our world has changed, but, but, but at the same time has some almost mythic resonance. So you could both be pointing out the crazy Hollywood spectacle, but then that would get you into the other tones of the movie. Basically, the circumstantial convenience that some may raise as criticism is instead a deliberate creator choice to convey something with the character of epic reality, the great stage of history, and how world-changing events often turn on unexpected moments of grace. Epic mythology may have warrior kings, fantastic magic, dragons, and demons, but it all turns on a tiny hobbit. Terrio's tale has that Tolkien-esque understanding of how at the dawn of justice, a new age of heroes, a humble human woman without powers, could be the key on which the world will turn. If Lois had not gone back, she'd be nowhere near the spear and have a hard time locating it after the landscape had been entirely changed by Doomsday's attack. And that's even assuming that Lois is even alive to tell the tale. Again, the filmmakers show us a landscape that is entirely devastated almost as far as the eye can see. For most of us, stuck our whole lives on Earth's surface, such an experience is impossible. With nothing around to block your view, five kilometers, about three miles, is about the furthest you can see. Now, haze can limit your view and atmospheric refraction can slightly extend it, but for the most part, everything you can see happens within an area of just 80 square kilometers. It's not evident that Lois could have escaped the blast if she hadn't been in the water. Lois is in great shape, but even the most athletic among us are going to have difficulty running in knee-high boots with four-inch heels while wearing a tight black pencil skirt. Lois is no more clumsy or hapless than any of us would be trying to hurry in wear built for fashion, not speed. People pointing out Lois falling as a filmmaker error miss the literary or symbolic parallels elsewhere. But also, the airtight logic of running in heels over uneven rubble obscured by standing water. The heels phenomenon. <laughs> Did yeah. it, were you surprised by it? Totally, totally surprised. Um, but I mean, I had so many different feelings about it. The very, my most superficial feelings were that, you know, I mean, it was really hard running in heels yeah. all the time. I'm like, people are acknowledging it. <laughs> That's right. They, it stood out to them because it stood out to me too. It was crazy. I know, I know, I, I wore, high-heeled shoes this whole movie and I know I'm like going on and on about it in a lot of interviews but like listen I am still really surprised that I survived <laughs> to be perfectly frank I mean I just I am very grateful I survived this movie without breaking my leg or neck or something worse it was really hard running in heels in the jungle and I liked you know that that was acknowledged <laughs> I mean it was really 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 difficult so I, I like that people noticed that because it it, it was uh, uh, physically strenuous and um, and and people took notice <laughs> I'm just saying that Lois has trouble retracing her own steps quickly, much less being able to evacuate the area devastated by Doomsday's dome attack in time. Sure, even if Lois could do a 15-minute 5K in heels, why would she at the outset? What would motivate that kind of movement in heels? She doesn't know about Doomsday until she sees
sees the explosion and hears its monstrous roar, critics claiming that she would have run at full tilt to escape a future blast radius are unfairly judging Lois as a fortune teller, with an internal overhead map telling her exactly how to evac. It's exactly because we lack that kind of omnipresent omniscience of all threats during an emergency that experts advise against running from a tornado, as we talked about in our second tornado episode, 31. Put yourself in Lois's heels, instead of judging from afar, as is clearly criticized by the film. Metaphorically, no one wants to see me in heels. <laughs> But this is the exercise or reoccurring theme, understanding the perspectives, limited information, choices, actions, attitudes, emotions, and beliefs of others before we rush to judgment. Okay, I've spent an inordinate amount of time on her fall when what detractors really tend to criticize is her decision to turn back at all. Why would Lois go back for the spear without seeing Doomsday or being told? Well, when we're on scene with Lois, we and she can hear Doomsday's Roar in the distance. In Gotham, Lois sees a blazing light plummeting to Earth at high speed, leaving black smoke in its wake. It hits a field in an explosion of fire. The tank explodes, its flames igniting the refinery's other tanks. The explosions blanket the industrial plant in roiling fire. <sighs> Seeing the explosions in the distance, Lois races back into the building. The film has already established Lois's credentials as observant and intuitive. She notices Kahina and Kanaizev in a sea of metropolitan faces. She figures out the classified conflict in Africa before Swanwick confirms it. She gains access to a warlord that even the CIA can't get near. She figures out how they got Superman in the desert and that Capitol Hill was a trap too. She figures out Lex's link to the bombing and proves Keefe is a patsy. And this isn't even taking into account her Pulitzer and career of press credentials from Man of Steel and before. To say that she couldn't figure out that she might need the spear contradicts what the film has been saying about her ability to act on inference. She knows something has been happening at the Kryptonian ship, and that those actions have lit up the sky, caused explosions, and now she's heard a monstrous roar that can't be her Clark. It's completely intuitive to obtain the only anti-Kryptonian an implement that she's aware of at that point, and this is a nuanced point that gets reiterated and refined in the fight against Doomsday. We don't need certainty to take precaution against monsters, but we do need caution when we act against men. When we control the brakes, we don't have to rush to judgment. Quote, do we have all the facts before we act? End quote. But when a monster controls the pace, we don't always have the luxury of inaction, indecision, or perfect information. The filmmakers layer principles that sit in tension like this when put into practice. Because life is complicated, nuanced, detailed, and sophisticated. It's too simple-minded to say, never judge or act or always fight and slay. That might work for fairy tales or formula films, but not in the rich fictional simulators where we work out our ethics, as James Wilson suggests. Professor Chris Robichard agrees. A simulation that teaches ethics or that helps develop moral reasoning, these sorts of things. So one type would be for individuals to be given different roles, where these roles are perhaps considerably quite different than who they are. And part of the simulation will have them occupying a completely different 
perspective and then having to navigate a scenario from that other person's perspective. And so the moral learning there would be a kind of compassion or empathetic association with that different perspective. I find them to be quite valuable when I've seen them enacted. The kind of simulations that I design really tries to have the person be the person in the simulation. It's you, it's me, it's whoever the uh, participant is. But adopting a specific role just to sort of really drive home the idea that uncertainty is part of real world decision making. The value that I find in that is it puts people in situations where they have to think for themselves about what they would do and they might surprise themselves when they see what they did in that situation versus what they think they would have done sitting down in an armchair in a classroom, that sort of thing. As the experts are saying, simulation can be a way of working through uncertainty. The unknown is perhaps one of our fundamental fears. Some researchers have argued that there might be one fundamental fear underlying all of these things. One you can trace all of your worries to. The fear of the unknown. Psychologists, maybe unsurprisingly, have been trying to understand fear for a long time. And evolutionarily speaking, the unknown makes a lot more sense as a universal innate thing to be afraid of. If you've never encountered something before, you don't know how to deal with it, which means a little caution might be in order. Our brain and our mind is a kind of prediction processor. We're trying to predict what's going to happen next. So when anything comes in and it doesn't match our template, our sense of categories, then we're cognitively and emotionally aroused. So it activates the amygdala, it makes us a little suspicious, or at least puts us on our toes again. We have a genetic predisposition to be averse to, or at least aroused by, that which is outside the ordinary. But when you're fresh out of the womb, you don't know what's normal or what's distorted and scary. Society benefits from knowing what's scary. Rather than requiring every naive individual acquire that information through personal experience, possibly expiring in the process, we use symbols and stories. We have long turned to fiction to help us cope with our fears. We pass down myth and legends to tell us what to be on guard against, monsters who are metaphors for our societal concerns. In fact, what do we mean by the word monster? Well, quite a lot. In English, we use monster to describe something or someone outside the bounds of acceptable form or behavior. Monster comes from the Latin word that means to show, and we see its root in words like demonstrate. We heighten, exaggerate, make ugly and extreme so that we avoid these pitfalls by a large margin rather than play with the boundary line. Monsters are made repellent so we understand societal transgression. Beyond some naturalistic boundary, to get labeled a monster, a mythical creature usually has to transgress some kind of social boundary as well. If you consider it from a psychological perspective, particular brands of monstrosity often embody particular human fears. Shapeshifters aren't automatically monstrous simply because they change forms. Think of Professor McGonagall or even the doctor. But because often that ability can be used to deceive. Think mystique or lead to uncontrollable urges like with werewolves. Vampires are another example. They may be a human-bat combo, but that's not really why they're monstrous. Vampires are bad because of their thirst for human blood, which is a pretty serious transgression of social norms. Often, some naturalistic transgression is simply an outward sign of what makes monsters truly evil, what anthropology professor David Gilmore calls an unmotivated wickedness toward humans. 
And this is part of what makes Doomsday in the mythos, and BVS specifically, an especially compelling composite. The film gives us every indication that this is a monster that needs to be put down by borrowing extensively from the monster compendium of our collective cultural consciousness. We've already talked about Doomsday taking inspiration from modern zombies and medieval ghouls, but it's also a modern Prometheus, stealing a great power from the sky, and born like Frankenstein, science run amok. Doomsday is an energy vampire, stealing the city's electrical lifeblood and the power of humanity's strongest weapon for its own strength. It is the ogre, the giant, the troll, hulking, huge, dumb, and hard to hurt, healing almost instantly. It's a spiky, fire-breathing dragon, a devil that fell from the sky, a city-leveling kaiju, a gray alien invader. It has the eyes of a demon, the teeth of a gargoyle, the claws and the roar and the pallor of a prehistoric predator, a ghost carrying the curse of a people's past sins which haunt us till today, a perfectly preserved mummy that didn't decay, a chimera of genetic material, a mutant, reanimated flesh golem, the shade or ghost or wraith of Zod, transfigured from man to beast like a werewolf, and so on and so forth. And yet our monster myths are not without hope. In most, there is an element of secret knowledge, a sacred or specific act, technique, or tool to fight back, intrigue that represents the weaponization of information, a key to incentivize and highlight the need to keep telling these tales again and again. So the stories often tell of a single weakness, a special ward. For Doomsday, it's not sunlight, silver, salt, seal, or crucifix, but being pierced by a supernatural substance called kryptonite. We could spend years on the psychology, philosophy, and mythology behind these monsters and their meaning. But I think it's fair to say that Doomsday is an intentional exaggeration and composite of all the existential fears they represent. Death, deformity, darkness, and the unknown. The story is screaming at the top of its lungs that this is the epitome of evil and that all action is authorized. No one blinks at our hero's clear intent to kill it. Only kryptonite weapons can kill it. The spear will kill it. I've killed things from other worlds before. Our collective consciousness already clears any doubts that Doomsday is a dragon to slay, and there is wisdom in that. We could craft our fiction to be nothing but sunshine and rainbows, but instead we choose to grapple with these things. Dr. Laurie Santos. What researchers call mental practice, a form of practice that you do not in the physical world, but inside your head. It turns out that simply imagining a behavior, say swimming an Olympic race or practicing the violin, can train your mind in some of the same ways as hopping into a real pool or picking up an actual instrument. Mental practice works because our minds aren't all that great at telling the difference between something that's really happening to us and something we just imagined. Envisioning an activity vividly, it turns out, recruits the same brain circuits as experiencing that event in real life. Which means our minds can learn from imagined events in a lot of the same ways as we learn from real events. Despite what shelves of self-help books say, it turns out that negative thinking is really, really helpful. In fact, new research is beginning to show that positive thinking, focusing only on the good outcomes, can be a recipe for disaster. What we find is the more positive people think about the future, the less well they do in reaching the positive future. I'm talking with Gabrielle Oettingen, professor of psychology 
Psychology at NYU and author of a book entitled Rethinking Positive Thinking. They are actually an impediment to our actual successes. Gabrielle's work has documented lots of cases where more positive thinking leads to worse outcomes. Simply put, positive thinking alone doesn't work. I asked Gabrielle if people are shocked when they hear about this work, whether she gets a lot of pushback. I do, but on the other hand, people are sometimes grateful because this positive thinking alone did not work for them. And they always think something is wrong with them. And they feel kind of relieved that they are not alone where they experience, that they can think positive and positive and positive and still things don't rain from heaven. And so how do we actually get the energy back we need to realize our goals? Oddly enough, we need a burst of negative thinking. Just like Michael Phelps visualizing swimming blind, getting to our own personal goals requires thinking about the obstacles that block our path. It's kind of counterintuitive that the obstacles in our way are actually the trigger for overcoming them and getting to implement our positive fantasies, but it's exactly what we found. We need to ground our positive fantasies in the gritty reality. It's a strategy Gabrielle calls mental contrasting. Every time we have a positive ambition for ourselves, we need to directly contrast that goal mentally with the reality of the situation, the actual obstacles in our way. And we need to simulate all of the obstacles, both the physical ones, like a pair of goggles falling off, but also the mental obstacles, our dumb habits, fears, and bad tendencies. That's a critical point in mental contrasting. Identify the inner obstacle and get rid of the excuses. Then we get the energy to overcome these obstacles. Mental contrasting is not just negative thinking or simply ruminating about all the bad stuff. It's making sure you factor the obstacles you're facing into your plans. It's contrasting the harsh realities of the world with what you'd like to see in the future. And that helps you determine whether your vision is really achievable or worth it. But that doesn't mean that mental contrasting causes you to give up when the going gets tough. In fact, this strategy can be essential for getting through the toughest physical, and mental challenges a person can face. And imagine the solution to a tough obstacle and your brain has already figured out how to overcome it automatically. But there is one small challenge. Like all other good things in life, we actually have to do it for it to work. And that can be tough in reality, not just because it takes time, but also because doing it well involves taking a long, hard look at yourself and your circumstances. Whatever the obstacle is, it needs to be identified honestly, without excuses. And then you can see whether you will be able to overcome it or not. Whooping works because it forces you to ask some tough questions. What are my inner obstacles? What am I afraid of? What are my real priorities? What are my insecurities? Are the people around me preventing me from doing what I really want? People who employ techniques know that this part, the unfettered honesty, can be daunting. Remember what Bob Bullman told his swimmers every day. It takes what it takes. Some obstacles require a lot of work, and that can be tough to come to terms with. So tough that we sometimes would rather put on blinders and just think positive instead. Wow. In light of all that, you can see why this Superman speaks to so many of us. You don't just show up with that much power and get to live a life of being adored, absent any hard choices, difficult failures, sharp criticism, and painful losses along the way, if you have any kind of conscience. Superman shows us that we can take on these obstacles with courage and character. But as the experts say, this is difficult to do. So monsters are a means of diffusing the hard details of reality with symbolic stand-ins that are easier to swallow than our own sins and shortcomings. The issue is that there aren't any actual mythological monsters. Most of our difficulties are in dealing with mankind. 
Professor Luke Russell, author of Evil, A Philosophical Investigation. Is it useful to distinguish some people and or their actions as evil? I think the concept of evil is a useful concept that has a proper place in contemporary moral thinking. I think the difference between a wrong action and an evil action involves the extremity of the wrong and the necessary culpability of the perpetrator. The type of harm, the scale of harm. The scale of the wrong, because I think there can be harmless evil actions. such as failed attempts at suicide bombings. Now, I want to say that is in the category of the morally worst kind of action, even if the bomb doesn't go off and no one's killed. They the, had the thought. And the attempt. The concept of evil action marks out extremity of wrongdoing. And then I think the concept of evil person is much more contentious. So I think if you're calling someone an evil person, you're taking a big step up from saying what you did was evil. I think if you're calling someone an evil person, you're saying you have an evil character, not necessarily that that you were born evil, but you've come to have a firmly fixed character that strongly disposes you to perform the worst kind of wrong. But I think there are some cases where we've got pretty clear evidence that that particular perpetrator is an evil person. So where do we draw the line? It's expedient and sometimes accurate to make others out to be monsters. But demonization is often how we misunderstand each other as well. Dr. Julie Shaw, author of Making Evil, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side. There is some merit, in fact, in talking about what evil might entail philosophically. But typically when we use that in everyday situations, we don't use it philosophically. We're not having a deep philosophical discussion about the concept before we apply the label. For me as a scientist, I always want people to ask why. And I think the moment the E word comes out is usually the end of the conversation. That's usually when you've, at the very latest, begun to dehumanize someone. And I think this is possibly, from a practical perspective, the single most important reason why I wrote the book is that when you label someone evil, what you're doing is you're justifying potential future atrocity against those kinds of people. You're saying, I'm different from this person in a fundamental way. Usually, you're on the side of the good, right? Because we all think we're good people. No matter what we've done, because we have the context and nuance, we know why we do the things we do. We don't have that for somebody else. We've labeled them evil. And the problem is that we can justify incredible, incredible harm when we stop seeing humans as humans and we start seeing them as monsters. Author Malcolm Gladwell quoting Dr. Emily Pronin, a professor of social psychology at Princeton. Pronin calls this phenomenon the illusion of asymmetric insight. She writes, The conviction that we know others better than they know us, and that we may have insights about them that they lack, but not vice versa, leads us to talk when we would do well to listen, and to be less patient than we ought to when others express the conviction that they are the ones who are being misunderstood or judged unfairly. Are we too quick to judge? Do we act on impulse? Do we act on disinformation? Do we have all the facts before we do something? BVS recommends that we take a beat, take a breath, and ask ourselves these questions. And like all principles or wisdom, it's not meant to be abstracted out into a rule requiring total perfect omniscience before we ever take a single step. It's not a call to complete analysis paralysis, for failure to acquire or consider every possible future or fact in existence. Just as first, do no harm, does not preclude the ability to make a cut necessary for life-saving surgery. This theme of imperfect information isn't an absolute prohibition on action until we know everything. Instead, it's a call to care and humility as a lens to our judgment and actions. Are we acting too fast on facts that we've filtered? If we're controlling the pace and the filters, do we need to pause or be more open? Nonetheless, action and decision is often exigent. So where do we draw the line? 
Well, the law isn't an answer to every philosophical question, but it does give us a framework for how we practically tackle issues like these. If we say that restraining judgment is the baseline norm, analogous to prohibitions on force or warrantless searches, then the law creates carve-outs or exceptions in the cases of emergency or exigency. You're normally not permitted to strike people, to search without a warrant, and you shouldn't rush to judgment and label somebody a monster normally. But exigency permits these behaviors. If the need to respond to the danger or harm is imminent, necessary, and proportional, then the defense of self and others is an idea codified in our most ancient systems of justice. These ideas provide the reasoning that distinguish Batman versus Superman from the Trinity taking on Doomsday. In the case of Doomsday, we have all three elements. Doomsday is an immediate threat who has just taken lives and will continue to do so if not stopped. Taking Doomsday's life is necessary because there's no reasonable alternatives available. And finally, it's a proportionate response because Doomsday is unjustifiably taking lives. Now let's look at Superman's ultimatum at Batman as an example of two out of three. If Superman is there to stop Batman from being a vigilante, and there is a car chase in progress, arguably there was imminence. And perhaps harder to argue, but you could say that the ultimatum was proportionate. If the threat is Batman's vigilantism and trampling over civil rights, Superman merely demands that he stop. He doesn't disproportionately, say, decapitate Batman to stop the vigilantism. So arguably, two out of three so far. But necessity is almost certainly missing. There are other ways to intervene which would have been more lawful, less personal, and better considered. Maybe. Lastly, let's look at Batman's plan against Superman. There is absolutely no imminence. Whatever threat Superman presents, it's one that hasn't accrued over the course of two years. Nonetheless, Batman has plans to quote-unquote destroy him from a long ways off, while there's no imminent or immediate threat of death to himself or others. There's no proportionality, because at its heart, Bruce is more concerned with what Superman stands for than anything that Superman has actually done. He wants to kill someone over an idea. And finally, there's no necessity, as there are other ways to stave off your existential fears about Superman besides killing him, namely the one that they find together through brotherhood. BVS proves that it's easy to make the other out to be the monster, when they were meant to be your brother. We make them monsters to excuse our actions. But if it's an action you would never want to do to your brother, or want your brother to do to you, parsing whether there is exigency is one test to figure out if you're justified. Are you the one driving the conflict, creating the emergency, and setting the pace? Unfortunately, we see how someone committed to their prejudice can convince themselves that they're right. Bruce created imminence by arguing all of civilization is hanging in the balance. He makes it proportional by setting it as the lives of millions against something that isn't even a man. And he distorts necessity by making a 1% chance a certainty. So how can we check ourselves against this kind of distorted thinking? We've talked about it before. Bruce is blind because he accepts only his own counsel. He plans in secret, he hears what he wants to hear, and he disregards the advice of the one person who knows him. He is not our enemy. 
let's contrast this against Clark. Let's be clear that Clark could have made it easy for himself if he wanted to. Superman obviously has his admirers and supporters, and Clark could commit to only consuming content that praises and adores him. He could soak in that, identify with that, and take it as automatic that everything he does is good by definition and unquestionably righteous. But instead, Clark works as a journalist in pursuit of the truth. He listens to outlets with a variety of views that challenge and criticize him, and he goes to the people who know him best, who have told him the truth before even if it was uncomfortable or challenges his choices. Clark listens to his opposition, not just to fold and do whatever they say, but as a check on his own convictions. Despite the criticism, he keeps doing what he believes is right. Make no mistake, Martha's words went in. You don't owe this world a thing. You never did. Clark doesn't go to Congress because of the critics, because he's been bullied by peer pressure or manipulated by the media. It's a choice. It's all a choice. Compared to listening to your critics and going to Congress, it is a lot easier to shut them out, label them as monsters, call yourself good, and just bask in all the positive feedback of your fans. It should be obvious that Clark is not obsessed with popularity or ego. For decades, he did his work anonymously, and now publicly, he does it silently. He isn't working the talk show circuit to become beloved, to be known, and to make the masses love him. To the extent that Superman means something, it's about our choice to do and put good out into the world. It isn't about the ego of just one person, and it is because that it is transparently about choice that Lex intends to torture Superman with one. Yes, it is the case that our moral culpability is lifted from a choice made under duress. That's a grace that we give to somebody under an impossible circumstance. But that doesn't change the fact that the person making the choice is still anguished by it. It's not like Sophie can just dispassionately say that she's under duress, so the choice is meaningless and she's not responsible either way. No, somehow we know that there is still significance to choice even if constrained or done at gunpoint. There is still choice even when there's no choice. There's still a will, even when there's no way. If it were otherwise, Lex could have rendered Superman unconscious with kryptonite and then used his hand to press a detonator to a bomb and been just as satisfied. But we know that that's ridiculous. With this re-emphasis on choice, that's why these movies are so significant. They make us understand, contemplate, and consider our choices. Are we fighting monsters or are we battling our brothers? Are we fighting for the future or are we battling our broken past? Are we fighting evil or an invention of the mob or of our mind. These nuances come out in a story this complex as they come out in life. There are times that you need to slay the dragon. When it's burning down the city, there's no need to debate or deliberate, where you just have to have the courage to follow your character and your convictions. But there are times when you've affixed the label of monster to give yourself a license to kill. The label is effectively permanent as a monster will never change or live long enough to do so. And there is some truth to that. Cal calls Zod a monster and he's right. Zod is practically defined by his refusal to change. By his own admission, the only end that he'll accept is death and suffering. But by contrast, Lex commits unspeakably evil acts, and yet he's extremely dynamic. And change leaves open the door to redemption, to hope, someone who might still be saved. 
we should not be dehumanizing people, but the judgment that someone has performed an evil action, the worst kind of action for which that person is morally responsible, that's not a dehumanizing judgment. That is, you are a human being. You are accountable to your fellow human beings, and you've done something terribly wrong. That's very different to saying you're just a dangerous animal. As evil as Lex is in BVS, there is no exigency requiring his extermination. Clark doesn't use his good acts, his adoring fans, or moral licensing to justify taking out an enemy who's wronged him in the worst way. Superman shows that if you're open, looking, listening, and mindful, then you might see that there's no exigency. There is no emergency. There's no demand that you demonstrate demonization and insist your opposition is a monster. When we're in a heightened emotional state, however, it can be hard to think clearly. The hot, cold empathy gap. Usually, when we think about empathy, we think about how we relate to other people. We regularly lack empathy for ourselves when we are in a different emotional state. When we're angry, we can't imagine being calm. When we are tranquil, it's hard to imagine being so angry that we could hurt someone. The hot-cold empathy gap can also be caused by physiological states. When we are really hungry, all our resolutions about healthy eating evaporate. When we are full, it's easy to forget what it felt like to be hungry. We imagine that we will stick to salads the next time. The hot and cold and the hot-cold empathy gap are a shorthand. They describe strong emotional and physiological states. When we're in a cold state, we're logical, deliberate. When we're in a hot state, our emotions overtake us. This gets at one of the most troubling consequences of the hot-cold empathy gap. Not only does it keep us from understanding ourselves, it can keep us from understanding other people. The hot-cold empathy gap doesn't just make us draw the wrong conclusions about our actions and motivations. It can make us unfairly judgmental toward others. This is how Batman is blinded by his anger even though Alfred says it to his face. Why he wants to destroy Superman even though Alfred says he isn't their enemy. How he can dehumanize a hero and fail to see his own villainy. This is our reaction when someone criticizes something that we love. And it's how criticism is often delivered. What explains the enormous gap between what women think they do and what they actually do? When we're asked to anticipate how we would respond, we don't take into account, one, how our emotional state in that moment, especially if it's a highly charged moment, will impact our behavior. We're not thinking about how being in a hot state might affect us. We also don't understand very well, I think, the strength of the situation and just what would be the cost of leaving. How would people perceive us? They're not thinking about how they're going to be feeling. They're not thinking about even really the other people in the situation. They're just thinking about what would they do. It's like wanting to build a house and showing up to the groundbreaking with only a sketch. A sketch that doesn't take into consideration any of the context or any of the obstacles, like the engineering requirements or the zoning laws or the funding. The anger, rage, dislike, or disgust makes critics more prone to criticisms that come from a complete lack of context, stripping away facts, emotions, details, and perspectives from decision-making. They do it when they forget the film that they've watched and ask why Wonder Woman didn't wield the spear. We do it when we call them stupid and intentionally evil in response. In either case, the theme of BVS comes through again. We may have the opportunity to choose, to reevaluate, to ask and decide, is this man my enemy? Or could he be my brother? Are my actions good and just? Would I want them revisited upon myself, my loved ones, or even my neighbor? 
am I being an ideal to strive for? If Superman breaks Batman, he isn't there to stand and fight by his side against Doomsday. And if Batman slaughters Superman, he isn't there to save the day. And the actual monster actually wins. Stay your hand and be open to your current critic as an eventual ally. It's already happened. It's the message of the movie. Come on! Okay, I'm rambling. Okay, I'm gonna cut it off right there. I've rambled on long enough. We'll come back to the rest of that recording in another episode. So thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, signing off. See you next time. J.R. Forsteros. He's a writer and podcaster who focuses on fantasy worlds, but he is also a pastor in Texas. A few years ago, J.R. wrote a book called Empathy for the Devil, Finding Ourselves in the Villains of the Bible. I'm always rooting for redemption. Really? Yeah, I guess I'm a romantic at heart. I think it's an interesting thought experiment to ask the question, what would it take for this character to become good? And for me, that's a different question from letting them off the hook. I think we can see someone transformed and still be punished for their crimes. Now, when I was talking to J.R. Forresteros, I asked him if there were any villain redemptions that did not ring true for him. And he did not hesitate for a second. He said Loki. And he was referring specifically to the Marvel Cinematic Universe version of Loki. Loki is a terrorist and a mass murderer. Like, he's in jail in Thor 2, but then they just let him out. And then it's just like, well, Loki's out. Okay. And we never hear a body count, I think, from the original Avengers movie, but I'm assuming more than one person died. And yet there's never any sense that Loki is, again, is held accountable for that. But we're, (laughs) we're meant to think like, well, he's just misunderstood. And I think to myself, who cares if he's misunderstood? Like, look what he did. That's so interesting because there's even that line on Thor Ragnarok at the end where he says, you know, they didn't really like me so much on Earth. And Thor is like, ah, look it over it. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, wait a second. Do you really think it's a good idea to go back to Earth? Yes, of course. The people of Earth love me. I'm very popular. Let me rephrase that. Do you really think it's a good idea to bring me back to Earth? Probably not, to be honest. I wouldn't worry, brother. I feel like everything's going to work out fine. Andrea Letamendi is a therapist and co-host of the podcast The Arkham Sessions. I do really value and respect the idea that we have this longer story that we can sort of point to in our pop culture. I I do think that's a meaningful story and is helpful for us to understand that recovery and redemption is not overnight. It's not linear. It's dynamic. It's complicated. And I don't think there are a lot of stories like that. I really cherish that we have this particular character. When have they gone too far for us to be able to forgive them? To your question about forgiveness and reconciliation, now that moves away from the realm of story and into the realm of real life, where we have to look at the fact that when people have wronged us, there is very often like a emotional, a mental, a material cost to that. Uh, We certainly have not then seen a movement past that to say, by virtue of the fact that I have done these wrongs, I am now going to dedicate myself to doing these rights. It would have to be for me some sort of recognition that I have used my great power to create great pain. And so now I'm going to 
rededicate the rest of my life to significant, deep, and meaningful transformation. Um, and again, that may not be possible. People may say, we want to lock them in a hole and throw away the key. I, again, I, I like to think that redemption is possible and that a life can be turned to good and have good made out of it. But with a lot of these villain stories, I think probably the reason we don't get those in our stories is because that's such a harder, messier question than just, you know, are they good at the end? I talked with Ronald D. Moore, the showrunner for Battlestar Galactica. You know, I just have this belief that on some basic level, forgiveness is the most powerful emotion in the universe. You know, it's it trumps even love, you know, because you love only people that you're attracted to, but you have to forgive those that you hate. And there's, there's something about forgiveness and its power. We see villains everywhere. It could be a person at work you can't stand, or someone in your family that undermines your confidence, or an opposing team, or politicians that you absolutely hate, not to mention the people that support them. Now, I know that for a lot of people who regret things they've done in their lives, villain redemption storylines can feel very inspiring. But what affects me personally in these storylines is the way the heroes handle themselves. Because when the villains come clean and say they're sorry, I'm not sure I could forgive them without worrying that I'm being weak or being taken advantage of. Deciding to trust somebody who has caused harm can be a real act of heroism. You're the answer, son. Take my hand and we'll 
got nothing to do with faith And everything to do with Pause. You're the answer, son.